Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of the Generosity Freak Show. I'm your host, Brady Josephson, and today we get to chat with Chuck Longfield. So Chuck is wicked smart. He's got a great Boston accent. He's a Harvard grad, and he has spent about 40 years researching and using his background in mathematics to the nonprofit space to figure out why do people give, what are the trends that we should be tracking, what's important. And that's the focus of this conversation. So we talk a lot about uh, vital signs, some of the latest research that Chuck worked on and some worrying trends, some underlying metrics that we should be aware of, and maybe some ideas of how we can reverse those trends. Talk a lot about sustainers or monthly donors, uh, why they're important, and uh, Chuck gives some great tips about some uh, proven practices to help recruit and grow those. And then we talk a lot about just philanthropy in general, how do we teach the next generation about giving, and then Chuck's own philanthropy and how he invests uh, in the Boston public school system and how he approaches that. So uh, it's a far-reaching conversation. I hope you really enjoy it. I I know that I did. And thank you, as always, for listening. Welcome to the freak show, here we go. It's just another freak show, here we go. I said, Welcome to the freak show, here we go. It's just another freak show, here we go. Welcome to the freak show, here we go. It's just another freak show, here we go. Welcome to the freak show, here we go. It's just another freak show, here we go. Hi, Chuck. Thanks for coming on the show. I'm very happy to be here. So in doing some preparation for the chat, you passed over your Wikipedia page saying this is kind of my bio, which I think is an ultimate baller move. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, and on that Wikipedia page, I found out that you're actually a trained mathematician, and uh, which got me thinking, who's, who's your favorite mathematician? Um, well, um, uh, that's, a, that's a great question. Uh, so I, um, I majored in uh, a, a sector of mathematics that's applied mathematics and in particular applied statistics when I was an undergrad. And um, there was a, uh, a book that's sort of the Bible and uh, like first year statistics uh, by uh, two gentlemen, Snedeker and Cochran. And um, they uh, were um, involved in a lot of the statistical work that was done in the clinical trials for uh, polio vaccine, the salt polio vaccine. And um, I uh, had a chance to actually meet uh, Cochran um, once I started working uh, in 1979. He was uh, working at the Educational Testing Service uh, down in Princeton, New Jersey, and I was doing some work down there as well. And one day at dinner, he was sitting by himself. He, he was, you know, was an old guy, and and um, and so I went up to him and uh, and started to chat with him. And he, he welcomed me to sit down and have dinner with him. Um, and uh, so, I, you know, I probably would say him. And, and actually, the reason why is I'm a big fan of applied mathematics, not theoretical mathematics. I have found it amazing how data and analytics um, uh, lead to discoveries that are useful discoveries, especially in this sector, the social sector. So, so I'd say uh, uh, Cochrane and, uh, and applied statistics. So. <laughs> there you go. Well, there, for all the, the mathematician, you know, fans and nerds out there, they'll, they'll love that. <laughs> Um, so I do want to dive into some of the research that you've done over, you know, the course of your career, but particularly the last kind of few studies that, that you've done, um, looking at overall giving trends and sustainers specifically, and then talking about your own philanthropy. You know, what, it's, what is it like to be on the other side of the equation and, and how do you approach that? I think that's all interesting. So that's where we're going today. I, I want to dive in with first.
post the vital signs report, really looking at charitable trends. And um, when you look at these trends, I mean, you've been tracking charitable giving trends for 30, 40 years. What do you see kind of right now that is really crucial for people to look at and and what's kind of good and what's kind of bad based on the, the kind of latest research that you've seen and done? Yeah, I know. Great question. So, um, you, you know, you're referring to a, a, a series of papers that I wrote called Vital Signs, which um, starting back in 2015, um, started to discover that the number of, of people that were making philanthropic gifts had been declining um, from 2010 to 2015. I think they, uh, the number of people, households in America giving to any nonprofit had gone down about 7%. And if you looked at the year and year over year change, it was pretty much a straight line decline. Hmm. Um, and when you think about the period 2010 to 15, that was post recession. Right. So we had already started to enter into the recovery. So you could have argued that we had a big drop in 2008 or seven, but by 2010, if you then looked at that period to 15, you would have thought that maybe it was slowly going mm. up, but it wasn't. It was slowly going down. Coupled with that trend was the fact that large dollar donors were actually giving ever more money. So total philanthropy was actually going up a little bit each year. And so it was kind of masking the fact that fewer people were giving. Um, not a great trend, though, that fewer people were giving. And um and so I did a little bit of uh, digging, and um, one of the things uh, that's true about philanthropy is that um, charitable gifts come out of a, an income stream called um, uh, discretionary income. There's a thing called disposable income, which is sort of how much money that you have after taxes. But m- much of the money that you have after taxes go to things you have to pay for, like rent and food stuff, um, or at least food that you have in your house, maybe not a restaurant. Um, discretionary income is um, what's left over after you pay for all the things you have to pay for. And that has taken a tremendous hit um, from the recession um, and, um, and really hadn't even by 2015 even come back to where it was pre-recession. And so, so I think that there's one whammy, which is that, that discretionary income took a big hit. The economy is doing better now, um, has been doing better the last couple of years. Unemployment is very low. Um, it's very hard to actually get good numbers on discretionary income. There's only one study that I know that produces it, and they only do it every few years. So I don't actually have a more recent number than the 2016 number. Um, but, um, but there's that. The second thing is, is millennials are under tremendous debt, $1.7 trillion of college debt. Um, and so um, that's also hindering their ability to do many things, not just maybe be philanthropic. And then the other trend that probably is affecting this fact that pe- fewer people are giving is the fact that um, you know religion has been on the decline. The number of people that are actually going to church. I I looked up this morning in preparation for this uh, this interview that the number of churches in America has declined ten percent. And the number of people going to church, depending on their religion, is somewhere between 10 and 40% of people that are no longer belonging to congregations. And, you know, a lot of people learned how to, how to give in their church, you know, with their parents. And um, that's no longer the case. So, um, so that's kind of the bad news. So, well, part of the bad news. The bad news is fewer people are giving. Right. The good news, you could argue, is, is that at least philanthropy isn't going down because – those the people that are giving are giving ever more money. 
Right. Yeah. When I, you know, when I read read through the report, I I see a lot more bad than than positive because my world's the more like average person, the average kind of household income, not necessarily the the wealthier side of the equation, but then also how do we grow giving, which is the purpose of this podcast. And if there's fewer households giving uh, overall, there's fewer new households giving, like then we're not doing a great job. And the, the thing that's tough for me, because I've always made the argument that I don't think we as nonprofits or marketers and fundraisers are, are doing a good enough job of understanding donors and why they give and connecting our messages, which I think is true. But what's great about the research that you have is there may be some underlying like that that may be true, but they also just maybe don't have as much money as they did a decade ago. And how do you parse out like which is which? So do you see any other reasons perhaps why that kind of the giving is on the decline uh, in terms of average households beyond the fact that discretionary income is down? Well, I would say that that um, whether this is actually causing it or just not causing the correction of this is is that practices among nonprofits are actually pretty bad. Um, <laughs> when you actually look at, at fundraising practices, if you're a large nonprofit today, you're asking donors a lot of times for gifts. You're probably asking them 15 times a year through the mail, 30 times a year. Through right. online, you know, email, um, and uh, and I think that many donors feel more like piggy banks than philanthropists um, or do or do gooders. Um, and so, you know, I think that one of the things that we have to get better at is um, is taking care of our donors. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, I think those papers that I wrote also showed what retention rates were. You know, retention rates for first year donors has also been declining for more than a decade. And it's somewhere between 20 and 30 percent, depending on your sector. Um, and so you do all this work to get a new donor. And then most of those donors leave you. Um, yeah. and so you spent usually more money than their initial gift anyway. And, and you don't even have them to show for it at the end. So um, so I think that um, that our practices, we can lay a fair amount of blame at our practices as well. So then how, how do you think we go about? Um, changing the practices. I mean, we'll talk about sustainers in a second, but it, it's interesting because I think a lot of the approach or professionalization of fundraising focusing on data has basically told a lot of direct response people, you need to send more email and you need to send more mail, right? We create these diminishing return lines and say, hey, you can you know mail up to this point and price per package and we've worked out all the math, but we're only looking at like a narrow timeline of that transaction. And yes, if all you want is the next gift, Maybe that's correct, but no yeah. one's thinking about what happens year two or year three or year four. Maybe that strategy isn't very good. Is that part of the problem? Like the, the data models that we've created are so short-sighted that we're not valuing things? Is that yeah. an issue? Yeah. yeah. So I, I think that a lot of the metrics that we use to judge this work are, are relatively flawed. So we'll start with simply um, you know, the response rate to an acquisition campaign. So most of the time we're going to use any list or any source of names if the response rate is above some measure of performance. <clears throat> you know, I remember when I first entered the industry 40 years ago, people were getting 2% response, 3% <laughs> response. And they were actually making money doing acquisition. Yeah. But then they slowly realized, well, we might as well do acquisition down to break even. And then they started even funding acquisition and losing money um, doing it. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, it doesn't make 
that much sense to actually pay somebody to become a donor if they don't stay with you. Mm -hmm. So a way better metric of performance is a retention rate of a first-year donor Mm -hmm. and looking at lists and acquisition sources by the retention rate. The problem is, is you don't know that till the next year. (laughs) Right. You don't know that when you actually made the acquisition purchase. But that second-year retention rate is what should feed your decisions about what lists you should be using and what sources of data. Mm-hmm. And I think so, for example, if we could get the, the list brokers in the industry to change from act, actually looking at the performance of the list itself to the performance of those names in year two, mm-hmm. that would lead to a lot of changes because I think a lot of times we're just buying, you know, uh, Roger Craver was a, a big fundraiser, wrote a great book on retention. Mm-hmm. He had a great line that instead of trying to find donors, people that like you and turn them into donors. We just continually try to find donors who don't know us and try to get them to like us. Yeah, totally. So it's the same group of donors that many of these organizations are exchanging. And by the way, I'll just throw out one other amazing stat that I found that's in those papers is that 83% of all money that's given to philanthropy across all organizations is coming from only about 20% of the people. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the household level, that's about 15 million households that are giving almost all of philanthropy. Mm-hmm. And so we're not doing a very good job growing the number pie, the mm-hmm. people that are on the outside of that. Um, and those people right now, there's many of them and they're not giving that much money. And we're relying on a very core group of people who fortunately are very philanthropic, but it's not really sustainable. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, we just had all these conversations about, you know, the stubborn 2% of the GDP and how do we affect it. And there's a piece of me that's like, I think it's actually the wrong the wrong question. If you really want to manipulate it, go get someone to give you a billion dollars and then great, we can move the needle. But we're not really growing the spirit of generosity in the average person and, and being able to manipulate 2% GDP. So that's why your report looking at the number of households and number of gifts – those two kind of more underlying factors, I think, are much more important for us as a sector. Are we connecting with these donors or not? Uh, so that part's interesting. And then, you know, this this focus on first-time donor uh, retention rate or just retention overall is maybe a good transition into another area of research you've spent a lot of time, which is sustainers. So, you know, I'm I'm Canadian, and uh, sustaining sustainer giving, recurring giving, is something that you know we. I think do a little bit better than than the U.S. and then particularly, you know, you go to Europe and Asia, and recurring giving is everywhere. It's default. Yeah. It's automated. It's tied to banks, and it it lags significantly in terms of prioritization in the U.S. Um, so before we talk, maybe some reasons about that. Why is recurring giving so important? Well, <clears throat> you know, I think that there's um, there's sort of a pull and a push around sustainer giving. One is, is that most people today have gotten used to a marketplace now where you don't tend to own stuff, but you tend to actually sort of rent it on a monthly basis. So when, when you look at like um, cable and Netflix and things, um, it's very common now that people are paying $6 a month or $10 a month or $20 a month for something. And I think we have already transitioned into that world, that transactional world. Um, and so I think that there's sort of a natural um, with, uh, with fundraising that we might as well actually take advantage of people's comfort levels, giving their credit card number or a bank account and actually having it happen. Mm-hmm. And then almost putting that into the background. And in fact, you could argue that many people subscribe to 
to cable sources um, that they're not even aware they subscribe to anymore. <laughs> right. I pay for HBO or I pay for Netflix or Amazon, and I don't really even use it. <clears throat> the same could be true. Um, you know, for actually nonprofits. But I think um, there's a, a second reason, which is, is that because retention rates are so low, um, it, it now in the past few years, has, it's Americans, uh, nonprofits have realized that it's best instead of actually trying to get a one-time gift from a donor to actually sign them up for monthly giving so that they actually can retain them. The retention rates are way better um, and the average gifts are even higher. So it just makes complete sense to, to do it. Yeah. And, you know, last year we did a, a research study on what were 115 nonprofits doing when it came to communicating the value of recurring giving and tracked three different donor types over three months and things like that to try to get some insights into what was going on. And I think what's what's uh, really interesting in doing that research is there there is this perfect storm of um, consumer behavior absolutely tilting towards subscription and that type of purchasing behavior. So having it bleed over into nonprofits makes sense. Nonprofits experiencing this pain of donor retention and becoming more aware of lifetime value and then even just transaction tools. So in doing that, it was the first time where, um, you know, uh, online donor acquisition grew 256% in that last year. More and more people are willing to kind of go online and sign up with a credit card as opposed to very phone-heavy, very face-to-face heavy kind of where we were in the past. So now there's actually some transaction scale to it. So there's kind of this perfect storm of opportunity, and I think organizations are starting to to come around on it. Uh, I hope that's the case. Um, so that's kind of like the data side of the equation. In in that report, there's some kind of tips and practices. Uh, can you list a couple of those that you've seen or that you recommend for organizations that are trying to to do better when it comes to recurring giving? Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, I can. Um, hold on one second. I actually, um, uh, yeah. So uh, you actually mentioned the uh, the website. Um, you know, uh, one of the things that um, the leading organizations that are getting sustainers, and and there are many organizations now in the country that have hundreds of thousands of sustainers, um, you know, uh, the St. Jude's hospitals, the, the public broadcasting, uh, you know, some of them, especially the ones that have access to television have done very well. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but a lot of other organizations, the animal welfare organizations, Humane Society and ASPCA. Um, but um, uh, one of the things that they've all done successfully is, is they've built a website that prioritizes um, monthly giving. Mm. You know, there was a time when, um, you know, people felt that if you came to my website, I should ask you for a gift and be happy that I get the gift, the one-time gift, Mm -hmm. and that maybe I can offer a monthly um, subscription, but I should do that in like little print because (laughs) if I, if I emphasize that too much, I'm going to lose too many people. Mm -hmm. And it is true that if the only thing you were offering was monthly, you would lose some one-time donors, but the average gift and retention rates of the monthly people are so much better. You really actually would prefer somebody to give money over a one-time gift. And so some of these organizations have, have realized that the, the big button should be give monthly mm. and somewhere in little print or the little button should be give me a one-time gift. And um, I, I'll tell an interesting story about public broadcasting that was experimenting with uh, neighborhood canvassing. So they were going through neighborhoods at PBS stations and knocking on doors and asking people for donations. They actually got to the point where they decided that the canvasser should not accept any one-time gift from a donor. So if a donor wanted to give a one-time <laughs> gift, 
they would at the door just recommend they go to the website and make the one-time <laughs> gift. But the person that was canvassing, they only wanted a monthly gift. <clears throat> and some of those stations have gotten like forty or 50,000 new donors yeah. um, to give monthly gifts by neighborhood canvassing. Interesting. So front and center, I would say, is is one. Don't be don't be shy. Yeah. Um, it, you know, that particular tactic, we're doing a research study on the online giving experience with 56 PBS stations and then a donation page study this year with 204 organizations. Yeah. And PBS stations are three times more likely to default to monthly than the average nonprofit. So they've taken this, you know, online and, and done that. Yeah. And uh, we ran that experiment before uh, and you definitely lose some <laughs> one-time donors, but you definitely yeah. get more – you know, recurring donors. And as long as you can track it, you can figure out to make sure that the math makes sense. And right. in That's almost right. every situation, it does make sense. We ran into a few when it actually didn't make sense, but oh, in general, that's, that's one. Um, so, so two more um, things is one is, is that organizations shouldn't be shy about converting their one-time donors to monthly donors. So if you take a donor who's been giving you to you for years, one gift a year, roughly on a yearly cycle, um, usually the same amount, maybe going up a little bit every now and then. Um, that donor, if you convert that same donor to monthly giving, another research paper I wrote that was on monthly giving showed that you would get almost double the amount of net revenue per year. Right. You improve the retention rate significantly, improve the average gift. Usually if they were giving you $100, they'll go to $10 a month or $15 a month. Now you're getting $120 or 180 um, and the retention rate is better. Hmm. Um, and so again, organizations, some organizations are scared about that. It's like, well, I'm not going to mess with those people. Those people are my bread and butter. They give every year. Right. Um, why would I want to make them monthly? But it turns out, that again, if you stick even with the, your public broadcasting example, PBS stations that used to have just single-digit sustainers, 5%, 6% sustainers, some of those stations now have 70% monthly donors converting virtually their entire file over to monthly giving wow. at higher price points than they were giving one time. Wow. So second thing I would encourage people to do is don't be shy with your with your uh, donor base uh, in converting them to monthly donors. Convert them to credit card or convert them to EFT, but convert them. Yeah, no, that's a great tip. Um, yeah. We've actually uh, seen people run conversion campaigns for recurring donors to move them from credit card to EFT. Like mm -hmm. if you've got sure. significant, significant volume, the transaction cost and lifetime value is worth you know, Even making better. that change. And and the, the, the key thing that underlines that is now this is happening in context of relationship, right? They've given to you a couple times maybe by now. So they, they like you and trust you to some degree. So if you come in and say, thank you so much, like, hey, you know what? This is actually like the best way to support. It's convenient for you. And like in the context of a relationship, that's a very fine thing to ask, right? If you're friends and you're like, hey, let's let's go to beers. Do you mind covering this? I'll get you next time. Like in the context of a relationship, asking for that makes sense. Where it doesn't make sense is in, you know, if you don't know them very well or something like that. So that's yeah. a really good point uh, yeah. as well. Any other kind of like tips well, or so, suggestions? So I'll throw out one quick one and then one that what you just said prompted. One quick one is, is that you should use a credit card update service because your credit card numbers are going to change. And if you're spending time chasing them all the time, it's sort of like having a hole in the bucket while you're pouring more water and you're just losing them there. So yeah, today, most, uh, most uh, services that process credit cards will actually fix the numbers. Um, and um, 
and I actually forgot what the, oh no, the other one was, um, you know, I, I would also say that in the old days, um, a lot of times they would feel like if you've got a monthly donor, you almost shouldn't talk to them that much they'll cancel if, when they find out that they're giving. And organizations now have found that monthly giving is just sort of background giving. You can ask them for major gifts, for projects, to come to events, to do a whole lot of things. These are some of your best donors. Don't be shy about engaging them. Yeah. Uh, someone else is doing a research study and they're just finding that how many additional one-time gifts recurring donors you know, make, sometimes even unprompted. Right. They're giving regularly and a disaster happens or something in the news and they'll just, you know, make another one time gift. It's because they care. Right. Uh, which is really interesting. So as as kind of, a, you know, someone who's seen a lot and, and studies a lot of data, where do you see recurring giving headed? Is this kind of a, an upward trajectory trend or? Yeah. So um, this is kind of an interesting thing. Uh, very early in the sustainer picture, I'm probably seven years ago, I actually coined a, tank, a, a phrase that uh, Roger Craver likes to um, to uh, use as well, um, that, that sustainers is a land grab. Um, and the reason I say that is, is that um, donors did give to dozens of nonprofits in a year and maybe different nonprofits, some core ones, some changing ones. Um, those um, donors are unlikely to give to 2,000, uh, two dozen sustainers. Hmm. They're not going to give to sustain and giving to right. all of the organizations. So some organizations are going to get in early enough and are going to become sort of my bedrock organizations. And I think a lot of people are then going to be relegated to one-time giving, which is just going to be more costly giving and probably less productive over time. Hmm. So what I would say is, is that organizations should be really focusing right now on getting their best donors <clears throat> locked into sustainer giving and, um, and do it, you know, quickly. I would also say, so that would be sort of an upward trend or, or what I would recommend as an upward trend. The challenge is, is that we also have an industry that has an awful lot of small nonprofits hmm. and monthly giving is seen as sort of a daunting threshold because there actually is some extra work and processing to enter it in. And you have to do that work, whether you have one sustainer or a hundred sustainers. So a lot of times it, getting over the threshold is hard. Um, I'm a big fan of our industry trying to consolidate, collaborate, find ways to scale, um, even if, uh, you know, they're sort of virtual ways of scaling. Um, but, uh, but sustainer giving is an example of if you're not doing it, you need to figure out how to do it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, that's <laughs> that's good. Um, but before we jump into kind of your personal philanthropy, um, one question I didn't ask you when we were talking about vital signs, and you referenced and kind of, you know, the decrease in people attending churches and things like that. Um, that that's I know in Canada we've we've experienced that a ton, where the number of tax filers or, or people who claim a charitable don uh, deduction um, has gone down. It's it's hovering around twenty percent now, down from almost thirty percent like a decade ago. So we're seeing a steep decline in people who are giving to charity. Yeah. And the, the the one of the theses <laughs> that we have is no one's being taught how to give. Um, so how do we struggle or how do we wrestle that problem? Maybe it's a tie into your work in schools, but like is, is schools a place where we can teach giving? Does it start in the home? Well, like how do we, you know, teach giving? Because we look at millennials and, you know, they love to give. It's everywhere. So maybe it's something that we don't have to worry about. Um, what, do, what do you think about this? How do we teach people how to give? Well, yeah. So, um, you know, I'll, I'll sort of 
give a couple of examples here that sort of illustrate this. So when I um, wanted to teach my children to ski, I took them to a ski mountain and ski mountains are great about offering free lessons to beginners or reduced tickets that would be coupled with the lesson. They want you to learn how to ski. There's a bit of a, of a, um, uh, again, threshold that you have to get over. When I took my children to learn to play golf, there's nobody at the golf course. You're, you're in a sense, supposed to either pay for your own lessons or teach children at the feet of the mother or father. Um, but golf is an intimidating sport and a very difficult sport to sort of make that, that threshold. The challenge is, is that while when you learn to ski, that one mountain may only have you for a period of time, and then you may ski someplace else, but everybody does it. The same would be true. They wonder why golf is on the decline. I mean, I happen to be an avid golfer, but golf in general is on the decline. And I don't think each individual golf course sees it as their mission to teach you Hmm. how to golf, how to keep pace of play, how to swing, how to repair a divot, or any of those things, and do it just out of the goodness of their heart because you're a first-time golfer. Nonprofits have to learn to do, I think, do that better. We, We don't have great examples where when you first give, you have such a great experience. And so the last example I'll give is I wanted to teach my children philanthropy and I gave them some money when they were young and I asked them to research nonprofits and find nonprofits to give. And um, one of my uh, sons decided to pick um, a animal welfare organization. I won't say which one, but it was an animal, animal welfare organization because we had a dog and he liked what they were doing to, to uh, help dogs. Um, and he made the donation and he got a thank you through the mail. And then the next 10 or 20 communications were asking him to give another donation. And he was just, it's great to act for a nonprofit to view their communication through the eyes of a child who's 10 years old. After the second or third one, my son never wanted to open that piece of mail anymore. And he would joke that it's just asking me for another gift, dad, throw it away. Um, And so... It was just the opposite experience you would want somebody to have in terms of actually engaging. And there's so many things that we could be doing to first-time donors to actually engage them in our mission. And I think that we don't, you know, we don't have the money to do this with everybody, but, but we should, early on in a donor's relationship, try to figure out what they want to get out of the relationship and, and maybe do a little bit of sort of... Um, sort of fork in the road of like mm-hmm. what is the right amount of resources I should be spending on this person. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a great story about the nature conservancy spending a little money on me after I gave a gift um, because they knew that I could give a much larger gift. And then, and I did right. um, and it was because of the great experience that they gave me after giving my first gift. Yeah. Yeah, the the seeing the donor experience through the eyes of a ten year old that's that's interesting. I mean, part of the reason why we make all these mystery gifts and track it is to see it from a donor's perspective and see you know how many times you get asked and how few times you get thanked. But to yeah. even think about a younger first time giver, and it probably burns them not just for that organization, but they're probably less likely to give to other organizations because all I'm going to do is you know just get spammed. Um, that that's yeah. interesting. I know that first kind of window uh, is. I mean, our research suggests is really important. And this year, we're taking the focus of first forty five days after you give, and after you sign up for email. What do organizations do to kind of 
engage with you while you're kind of new and see how they're different, if at all. Um, And upon cursory glance, we are seeing more surveys where people are trying to collect a little bit like – fan of that. Yeah. Why, why did you give today or, or what what are you interested in seeing or how did you find out about us? Um, yeah. So that's that's encouraging because then we'll see if they follow through, right? If we say this is what we're interested in and then they never talk about that again. Well, then now you've actually broken trust because you've asked me and not followed through. But That's an example of where scale again comes in because if you're a small nonprofit and you ask somebody which of these three or five topics are you interested in, in general every month, you don't have the resources to have five five different letters that are telling them what the five topics are doing. And so you're going to talk about one of them and I'm going to think you didn't listen to me. Right. Yeah. No, that's a good point. Um, so let's, let's move now. You've talked about your family and, and your kids. Let's talk a little bit about your, you know, personal philanthropy, um, which I think is really interesting. You know, the more that we understand donors and their perspectives, but you know, you knowing as much as you do on the nonprofit side, uh, I'd, I'd love to know how you kind of, you've used that to shape your, your philanthropy. So your family foundation focuses a lot on Boston public schools. Um, can you just share a little bit about why you decided to focus on that area or, or give back at all? So I, um, I, I mean, I know a lot of people always joke like you grew up poor. I grew up very poor. I grew up in the inner city of Boston. Um, uh, my dad had an eighth grade education um, and uh, you know, hadn't graduated from high school. In fact, I don't think he graduated from eighth grade. Um, hmm. and, um, uh, and so I went to the Boston public schools and I um, did well there and had a chance to go on to Harvard and had a, you know, sort of a great career. Um, most of the kids in my neighborhood did not graduate from high school um, and did not have a very good experience. And they ended up, you know, if they were, a lot of them actually died um, when we were young, but um, uh, some of them, you know, ended up having very difficult lives and, and sort of at the poverty level of trying to, to make it. And, um, and so I'm a big fan of what education can do. Um, and so when I so sold my companies, um, I decided that I was going to focus on education. And, and I would even say, you might have seen it in my bio, that in the middle of my 40-year business career, I actually had took a couple of years off and I became a high school teacher. So I actually um, went back and got certified to teach math in the public schools. And I taught for a small while, a short while. Uh, and uh, and so I'm a big fan of what education can do. And so uh, most of my philanthropy now goes towards that. And so you ask, well, okay, so I am analytical. I want I, I want to see metrics on performance, and how do I do that? And so I'll give the one example of Teach for America, great organization. They take kids that graduated from you know, did well graduating from, uh, from college. And they, they, it's like a Peace Corps program for two years. You go into the public schools, you don't get paid all that much money, but uh, a lot of the people that do it end up staying in education. It's actually over the past 25 years, this woman, um, Wendy Cop from uh, Princeton um, started the program and uh, it's, it's really remade education. A lot of really bright people have come into the field of education and, and uh, had a big effect. So the, the organization I give to, I fund a couple of Teach for America teachers in Boston and um, I have a contract with them that says that these teachers have to actually move students one and a half grade levels per year. And um, so we negotiated that number. And um, it turns out that the average Boston public school teacher moves a student about a half a grade level a year. So every year they're in school, 
the student only moves a half a grade. So they, you know, 12 years, you get six years of, of education. Um, that's sobering. About one third of the kids in Boston don't graduate from high school. Um, and, um, and so a lot of kids are being left behind. But Teach for America shows me data that actually says our teachers move them one and a half grade level a year. And if they fall short, at least I know they're falling short if they right. do one grade levels. Right. It's, and, uh, and I can decide whether to keep funding them or not keep funding them. Yeah. And so I like having those conversations. It's not always that easy to do, but usually I look at it through the lens of a child. Are children benefiting their education? Are there better outcomes for them? And if I'm giving you money, how do you correlate to that? Right. So, that's that's a great example of and especially something that seems uh you know on the surface maybe like really difficult to track. Well, it's important, so Teach for America figured out, you know, h- how to track it. And I think that's what's tough because a lot of funders that we talk to would love to have this, you know, like index of impact that's, you know, equally weighted across sectors and you put in a dollar and you get x impact and like that's such a convoluted complex thing. So to just be able to do it in kind of one area um, seems a lot more tangible, a lot more, you know, doable on your side. Um, so are there other examples within within school or are there things that you're specifically looking at maybe before you decide to to fund them or to renew support? Or is it really that kind of, you know, impact relationship side? Yeah, well, so I think, you know, I, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm fortunate because I you know, in a sense, I, I'm giving away a large enough amount of money that I can actually spend time in a sector to really understand all the levers of the sector. And so I think that that major donors today really want to understand that because, you know, many of the problems that we're trying to solve, whatever it is, homelessness, you know, hunger, um, we've been trying to solve for a very long time. And so I think it can be frustrating to donors sometimes to feel like, you know, I'm being philanthropic, but I'm dealing with the same issues today that I dealt with 10 years ago. And I would say, you know, as an example, in the Boston Public Schools, the schools today are not that much better than they were 10 years ago. And so you can feel very frustrating after giving away millions of dollars, like, did I move the needle? Did anything really happen? But I think what does happen is you start to understand increasingly where the levers are. Like, what is, so for example, one lever in education is the teacher that's in the classroom. There's a big difference between if you put a, 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 an inadequate teacher in a classroom and you do that for three years, the children in that classroom, in that subject, almost can never remediate the deficiencies they get. Whereas if you put an an average or above average teacher in the classroom, they tend not to fall behind. So how do you do the professional development? How do you do the selection process? Who's accrediting teachers? What are the mechanisms for educating them, the universities? And so there are organizations that actually focus on that. And so when you start to understand that, you can say, okay, well, some of my philanthropy can go to this sector that's actually trying to improve the workforce, mm. that's actually in front of children. Right. And, um, and so, so I feel like I've been doing my foundation has been doing this for 12 years. I feel like at this point in time, I actually understand that better. Mm. Like what's done at the legislative level, what's right. done at the uh, school level. Yeah. No, that that's a great example. And it's another example of kind of staying focused in your giving too, right? Instead of trying to understand the levers of education and homelessness and hunger and like, holy smokes, how do you, how do you figure all that out? Whereas you a novice at all of them, you, you'll never, you know, Right. No, exactly. That's that's great. 
Well, uh, thank you so much for giving me so much of your time today. I'm sure we could have talked about any of these, you know, much, much longer, including golf. We didn't even talk that much golf. We can talk golf next time. Talk, we can golf, <laughs> talk about golf on the golf course next time. Uh, we take that okay, up. that sounds good. I'll take you up on that. Um, well, thank you so much for giving us your time. Uh, is there anywhere that people can learn more about you and your foundation or your work and research? Yeah, well, so I, I wouldn't say my Wikipedia page because I don't even know who puts together Wikipedia page. Um, but, um, uh, you know, you used to be able to learn more about me at Blackboard. I retired in December. You know, we didn't even start with that. So after oh, 40 there you years, go. I'm, I'm, I'm Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'm playing more golf. Um, <laughs> and, uh, um, but, um, but I am still um, on the board or part of the Blackboard Institute. Um, and so um, my papers are there, and um, and I still do a lot of public speaking at conferences like the AFP conference, or excuse me, others like that. Um, but um, but I will say it's it's certainly a little more difficult to uh, to follow <laughs> me. I used to have a big blackboard page with links to all my videos and papers right. and stuff. Um, I don't have that anymore. But, uh, <laughs> That's a little harder. All right. Well, we'll be sure to send out the the research papers on the Institute site because we use okay. those all the time. We're big fans of that. So, again, right. thank you so much for all your work. Congratulations on your retirement, and uh, hopefully we'll chat again soon. Thanks, Brady. Have a good day. Hey, this is Brady, and I just want to say thank you for listening to the Generosity Freak Show. If you want to get all future episodes, please be sure to subscribe at generosityfreakshow.com, or you can just search the Generosity Freak Show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. So if you have comments, questions, feedback, you can email us at podcast at next after. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, the Generosity Freak Show is produced by Next After, where I work. It, Next After is an online fundraising research lab that works with nonprofits to help them grow their online fundraising. And our mission is to unleash the most generous generation in the history of the world. You can learn more about us and what we're up to and see our latest research at nextafter.com. Lastly, this show would not be possible without my co-host, Tim Kuchuriak, and our amazing mixologist and producer, Nathan Hill. So many, many thanks to them. So thank you again for listening, and we will see you next week. <laughs>